0: Before we open God's word today, let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being in our midst. Thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit through whom you teach us and open up the word to us. We ask, Lord, as we go through your word this morning, that you would guide us and lead us and help us to understand and apply what you're teaching us. Thank you, Lord, in your name, Jesus. Amen. Many years ago, while attending a series of Christian meetings at university, I had the privilege to hear a talk given by a well-known Christian leader. Uh, He was in business management and he was aptly named Charles Tremendous Jones. In addition to following Christ, his real passion was about developing leaders. And he had many stories that he told us. And among these stories, uh, I wanted to share one with you. When his son was uh, 9 or 10 years old, he made him a promise. He promised that when his son turned 16, he would buy him a car. But in turn, his son also needed to make a promise. And the deal was, for every report of a book that his son read and gave to his dad, his dad would put some money into a car account in the bank. And at 16 years old, this money would be used to buy him a car. And he said to his son, You know, if you read many books, you're gonna drive in style. But if you read a few books, it's not gonna be a very nice car. So he told us overnight, his uh, young son developed a passion and a thirst for reading. And as he had promised his son, with every book report submitted, the car account would grow. Jones promised his son a car, and his son believed his dad. With every book read, his dad's promise was becoming slowly fulfilled. On the appointed day, he would have his car and the promise would be fulfilled. His son's hope for a car was based on a promise initiated by his dad. It was his dad's idea, not the son's. With each book read, the car account grew, and his son could see the presence of this promise coming closer and closer. Because Jones made this promise, his son had the assurance that he would one day own a car. But it wouldn't fully arrive until he turned 16. Well, when the day arrived, on his 16th birthday, his son went to his dad and very quietly said to him, you know, Dad, after reading so many books and learning so many things over the years, I've realized it's cheaper to borrow your car than to buy my own. And so instead of buying a car, his son used the money for college. Very smart son. And I think this was his father's plan all along to educate his son through books. Now, last week, in our first message in the series on Christian Hope, we explored God's promise of hope, in which God says he will free us and all the rest of creation from bondage, corruption, and death. God promises to give us everlasting life within a restored, and completely new creation, freed from evil and sin, where God is always praised and glorified. Now, because God promises hope to humanity, then we are assured that hope is on the horizon. After all, God does what he says he will do. And like Jones's son, we are also called to participate in receiving God's promise. We are called to believe and submit our lives to God's Messiah, Christ Jesus, who has redeemed our lives with his own. Now resurrected, Christ leads us to partake of God's promise, which is his gift of grace. Christ leads us into this forgiveness and new life. As his adopted children, we live in his promise of hope, all because of Christ Jesus. Now the beauty of God's promise of hope is that it does not just sit waiting off in the future for us. It is now present. It is now here as a here and now reality. The presence of Christian hope builds upon the promise of hope. It is now unfolding before our eyes All wrapped within Christ Jesus, the one who fulfills God's promise in us and the one who brings this promise to completion. Of the many texts that demonstrate the presence of hope, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, wonderfully uplifts Christ as our present and future hope. You know, when I I came to this passage, if I'm reading it, I was. Thinking back to when I was in grade school, we had an English teacher whose name I've long forgotten, but she taught us that we should be able to say aloud one sentence with one breath. I guess as children, we were learning to compose our thoughts and we were creating long rambling sentences. And this is her way of telling us, shorten your sentence. One breath per sentence, she would say, Well, our text for today takes our breath away, not just because of the amazing description of the presence of hope from God, but also because this passage, verses 3 to 14, is the second longest sentence in the Greek New Testament. Paul assembles together 202 words, creating one long sentence, declaring the praise of God and teaching us that the promise of our hope is present now. Since this is such a long sentence, translators and commentaries, commentators have divided Paul's ideas into various segments or sections. So for today, I have chosen to highlight God's full commitment to bring glory to himself in the presence of his hope by dividing this into three sections. Each section, highlights the work and presence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And each section, as you will see, ends with the refrain to the praise of His glory. Now, before we dip ourselves into this refreshing stream of God's Word, I invite you to notice that in this sentence, as we go along, Paul repeats three times that everything is done according to God's purpose. And three times he has the refrain, all for the praise of God. As we go along, you will also notice that throughout this text, the name of Christ appears everywhere. Paul is emphasizing that the presence of Christian hope resides in Christ. Now, the whole focus of this this passage from 3 to 14 actually is stated right in the very first verse, in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God is praised and blessed because he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. The promise of God has become our present hope. I like to describe verse 3 as the umbrella verse because it forms a cover or a canopy under which everything else rests. And there are two parts to this verse, you'll notice. The first part ascribes praise to God, and the second describes God's provision of blessing as the reason why God himself is blessed. Paul ascribes to God blessing when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus. When Paul writes God, he's referring to deity, the one true God, of Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. When Paul uses the term Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's referring to the role of the Father to the Son. And Paul describes that God is blessed because God is the origin and source of every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. For he says in the second part, he who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, if in heavenly places. The promise and the presence of hope is God's idea and his desire for us. So watch how Paul tells us how God blesses us. We are blessed in Christ. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing. We are blessed in the heavenly places. Christ is God's primary blessing to us. It is not only through the work of Jesus that we are blessed, but also because we are incorporated in him. And since Christ is in heaven right now, seated at the right hand of the Father, these spiritual blessings, which are in him, are in heavenly places. Now, if you if you think about this, if you ponder this, it's quite incredible. Not only does God promise us hope. But this hope is now present because God has blessed us. That is, notice, already blessed us. This has happened. And if you are in Christ as his disciple, then you are blessed with every spiritual blessing. As O'Brien in his commentary mentions, these gracious gifts are not simply future benefits but are a present reality for us, since they have already been won for us by God's saving action in Christ. Notice again also that every spiritual, that these blessings are actually spiritual. The blessings belong to or come from the Spirit who mediates blessings to us. Now as we progress in our text, I want you to also notice that these spiritual blessings span the past, the present, and the future. But you may ask, what are these spiritual blessings? You may think to yourself, okay, I know I'm saved. I'm pretty sure of that. I know that I have believed in Christ Jesus. Uh, I prayed for salvation. I know He's my Savior and my Lord. But I never really was aware that God has given me spiritual blessings. So what are these blessings? Well, in the next series of verses from verse 4 to 14, the rest of our time together, Paul spends describing for us what are these blessings. And as we explore these, I believe your heart should be ready to burst with joy and wonder at how deep is God's love for us, even as he fulfills for us these wondrous promises. Not only is such Christian hope A present reality, but it is growing and maturing as a hope that deepens as the day approaches when God's kingdom will be summed up in Christ. Now God's spiritual blessings and our hope begins with the Father who chooses us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from verse 3, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The first thing that God reveals to us is that he chose us. You are chosen in Christ. In him, it says. Even he chose us in him. The concept of being chosen is a, a biblical theme that uh, emerges throughout God's word. If you remember, God chose Abraham to bless him and to bless the nations through him. God chose Israel when he said, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And in these last days, God has chosen us. As Peter writes in 1 Peter, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This should both astonish and humble you. Think about it. God chose you. God chose to love you. God chose to redeem you for himself so you would be counted among his people. God himself has set you apart for him. God's choice of you was completed in Christ Jesus. This is how God chose you, in Christ. In these few words, Paul reminds us That Christ died for our sins so that we'd be forgiven, which is mercy. And then Christ rose to life, that we would have life. And that's called grace. This is even more profound when we expand this and look at what Paul tells us about how God chose us. And we see that God chose us before the creation of the world, before the foundation of the world. In a mystery beyond understanding, our Heavenly Father chose us in Christ before he made the world. Now, Paul does not teach that our souls pre-existed in the heavens with Christ, nor that we were present in some mythological sense prior to creation. God planned salvation in Christ prior to creation, before you or I existed. If this sounds confusing, all I can say is that we cannot grasp the things of God for he is beyond us. What is amazing is that God chose us and now shares with us such knowledge. O'Brien helpfully adds this in his commentary. To say that election took place before creation indicates that God's choice was due to his own free decision and love, which were not dependent on temporal circumstances or on human merit the reasons for his election were rooted in the depths of his gracious, sovereign nature. To affirm this is to give to Christians the assurance of God's purposes, that these are for us and are of the highest good. And the appropriate response from those who are chosen in Christ from all eternity is to praise him who has so richly blessed us. End quote. God the Father's Desire in choosing us was that we would be holy and blameless before Him. This gives God pleasure and joy. To be holy is to be set apart for God, that is, to be morally and ethically pure. To be blameless is to be innocent, pure, and without defect. I'm not sure, do you really feel holy? Do you really feel blameless? Well, in God's sight, he sees you as such because you are in Christ. God chose you in Christ before creation so that you would not only be set free from sin and death and have life, but that you would be holy and blameless before him. God chose us in Christ. And we see in verse 5 that God chose us in love. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. To predestine means to decide beforehand. The word emphasizes that it was God's sole initiative. Like the story I told earlier where, where Jones decided to promise his son a car. That was his idea, not his son's idea. It's not our idea to be saved. God initiates this before creation. This was what he was going to do because it brings him joy and pleasure to save you. God predetermined that he would adopt and love us as his very own. When he says that he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, we learn a few things about the nature of this adoption. We learn that our adoption is through Christ Jesus and only through Christ. There is no other way in which we can be adopted and belong to God. Secondly, our adoption is based on God's predetermined choice which aligns with the pleasure and purpose of His will. We also see that adoption results in the praise of His glorious grace as seen in verse 6. To say that God's grace is truly glorious means it reflects His glory, His revealed character, and is therefore worthy of praise. His choice to redeem you reflects His glory as we praise Him and praise His grace. He also says, and repeats it, He predestined predestined us through Christ and He blessed us in the Beloved. The central role of Christ is repeated here when he says, the beloved. Twice in the Gospels, the Father refers to the Son as beloved. At the baptism and at the transfiguration, God declares, This is my beloved Son. O'Brien adds, The beloved is the supreme object of the Father's love. I'll say it again Jesus Christ is the supreme object of the Father's love. This is where the promise of hope merges with the presence of hope and becomes connected. You see, and this is amazing, we are caught up into the love which is between the Father and the Son. God's love for the beloved and Christ's love for the Father results in our adoption in our being holy and blameless, all to the praise of his glorious grace. What a wondrous spiritual blessing that is now yours and will remain yours forever. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is praised, first of all, because he chose us in Christ. Now in verses 7 to 12, God is praised because the Son redeems us. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. The word redemption means deliverance from bondage or imprisonment to the payment of some price. Our redemption, Paul says, is through the blood of Christ. The price paid for you and for me was the life of Jesus. The biblical connection between blood and forgiveness is seen in the Old Testament sacrificial system, which is now completed in Jesus. As it says in Hebrews chapter 9, How much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, Purify your conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Klein, in his commentary, he adds this By Christ's own violent death on a Roman execution rack, he secured people's release from slavery to sins. He died so that people, dead in their trespasses, and sins might live. So, Paul repeats that. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Paul specifies that the price paid by Christ's life resulted in our forgiveness. The redemption was drawn, notice, was drawn upon the riches of his grace. It's like Christ takes from the account of God the Father, his grace, the riches of his grace, And he applies it to us. In fact, Paul uses a very interesting word. He says, in which he lavished upon us. Lavish means to cause, to overflow. So God's grace overflows and washes us in forgiveness through Jesus. And his grace also fills us, as it says, with all wisdom and knowledge. God desires that we know the mystery of his design and plan within our present hope. And this is seen in verses 9 and 10. He gives us all wisdom and and, and insight, making known to us the mystery of of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Not only are we redeemed now in the present today, God also grants us the privilege to know the mystery of His will for the future. The mystery of a mystery is something that is um, that's hidden, it refers to, um, to secrets that must be disclosed or revealed in order to be known. For example, back in Matthew, uh, when Jesus explained to His disciples the, uh, the parable of the sower of the seed, he said to them, for to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, those outside in the public, it has not been given. So they wouldn't know because it has been revealed to them. So what do we know about the mystery of God's will? What is is God showing us about his will? And it connects what we, we discussed last week as well. We know that it's set forth in Christ. The mystery is part of God's purpose, and this mystery is brought forth in and through Christ. The idea here is that Jesus is the chief administrator who arranges, fulfills, and ensures the purpose of God is realized. So God's plan will be fulfilled at the right time, in the fullness of time. But that fulfillment has already begun. It will be completed in the future, but it's already in process of unfolding before us. And that purpose is to unite all things in Christ. The great mystery of God's will that you know from this text is that he plans to unite everything in Christ. O'Brien again says it this way, Christ is the one in whom God chooses to sum up the cosmos, the one who restores harmony in the universe. Christ is the focal point. The universe is centered in Christ Jesus. It's like an architect who submits design plans long before construction begins. God reveals his plan in Christ. At the right time, God takes the decisive steps to implement his plan and brings it to completion in and through Christ. As we discussed in our last message last Sunday, the completion of God's plan is something eagerly awaited for by all creation. Because in Christ, all creation in heaven and in earth will be completed, renewed, restored beyond our imagination in its beauty and completeness. In verses 11 and 12, Paul now takes us and takes us back to pick up the thread he started when he spoke about our adoption through Christ, in which he goes on to describe as an inheritance. In him, that is, in Christ, here we see Christ again as reappearing. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, here it is predestined, predetermined, according to the purpose of him who, who works all things to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Now, the Greek text here provides a a couple of ways to translate this. It can mean, as the ESV has it, in Christ we've obtained an inheritance. Or it can be translated, in Christ we were appointed to be His, that is, God's possession, or to become His inheritance. That is, in Christ we are claimed by God as His portion. God the Father chose us to be his children and to belong to him. In either case, this has already happened. Notice it says we have obtained. That's past tense. That's now. We already possess this inheritance of life in which God foreordained us to belong to him. This is worked out within his perfect knowledge or the counsel of his will so that those who are the first to hope in Christ will be to the praise of His glory. The first to hope in Christ in in verse 12, it may refer to Jewish believers like Paul, who first received and followed Christ. This would initiate the fulfillment of God's plan to redeem a remnant of Israel. And it brings forth a chorus of praise to His glory. Whether or not this refers to the first Jewish believers or to the first who responded to the gospel, all who hope in Christ do so to the praise and glory of God. Now the final, but by no means the least, of every spiritual blessing in heavenly places is the role of God's Spirit in our present hope. So God the Father chose us to belong to Him. The Son redeemed us with his life so that we could and would belong to the Father through Christ. And now God, the Holy Spirit, marks us as those who belong to him in verses 13 to 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, we can rearrange this verse a little bit in a way to make it easier to understand. So the main thought here that Paul is getting across can be stated in this way. In him that is in Christ, you, that's us believers, also that is in addition to previous blessings, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, a seal was used as a guarantee, indicating not only ownership, but also to guarantee the contents of whatever was inside, that they were correct. For example, a merchant would place his property in a container, then he would stamp it and seal it, and the seal was a security measure, so that any customer would know who owned the container and would know that the merchandise inside was verified as accurate. In a spiritual way, the Holy Spirit seals all believers in Christ, thereby identifying us as who we belong to, and verifying that we are in Christ. So when did this happen? This is the other part of the verse. When did this happen? It happened when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Paul said it at another time in Romans in this way, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. The moment you believed, God stamped you with his seal of the Holy Spirit indicating that you now belong to Him. Further, Paul goes on and says that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The word translated guarantee means down payment or a pledge. It is a deposit which in itself guarantees the full amount will be paid later on. The down payment is of the same kind as the full payment. By sealing us with the Holy Spirit, God has made the down payment on our inheritance. It is God's assurance that one day we will acquire full possession of His inheritance bequeathed to all believers. Again, O'Brien offers this. In giving the Holy Spirit to us, God not only, or God, is, sorry, I'll say it again, in giving the Holy Spirit to us, God is not simply promising us our final inheritance, but actually providing with us a foretaste, even if it's only a small portion of a future endowment. God is permitting us today to experience present hope as we are filled with the Spirit, even as we anticipate the day when our redemption will be complete." Now, I like the way that Klein in his commentary summarizes this entire passage. So it's a longer quote, but I think it's nicely put. Klein says this, the praise of verses 3 to 14 lifts the readers to heights of worship and praise of the Trinity. In and through the work of Christ, God chose us to be holy and blameless, determined to adopt us, bestowed on us grace, redeemed us from sin, revealed His will to His people, implements this glorious plan at just the right time, grants us an inheritance and gives us the Holy Spirit now as a down payment of our inheritance in the future, all to the praise of God's glorious grace. All of these blessings reflect God's pleasurable will, are accomplished in Christ and will result in the praise of God's glory. Praise be to God for the blessings he has determined for those in Christ. End quote. So we see that the Christian hope is more than a promise. It's a present reality. In this passage, we have seen the presence of God and his hope as God is glorified, honored and worshiped and praised because the Father chose you. The Spirit redeems you. The Spirit seals you and guarantees that God will complete one day his promise of doing what he says he will do, all to his praise and glory. Now it is not so much that we hold on to this promise as it is that the hope of God holds on to us. I'll say that again. It is not so much that we hold on and grasp this promise as it is that the hope of God grasps and holds us. With our minds, we see the wonder of God's blessing. Us with every spiritual blessing. And in our hearts, with our hearts, we receive and dwell in these blessings in Christ, our Savior and Lord. So I'll leave you with this. Sometime today, or during this week, I would encourage you to list and write down the blessings found in these verses. Put them on your phone. Write them on a piece of paper. Better yet, memorize them. For when, for when temptation comes to stray into hopelessness, you can read or remember this list Of God's spiritual blessings. Let these blessings infuse your life and be ever present reminders of your hope in Christ. Praise God what treasures he freely and lovingly gives us, all in his grace and through Christ. Join me as we pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for choosing us. Thank you, Jesus, for redeeming us, for coming here in human flesh and giving your life that we would live and then conquering death, that we would live before you forever. Thank you for sending us the Holy Spirit to fill us now, to seal us, to ensure that we belong to you and testify to our hearts that, yes, we indeed belong to you and that is our hope. Thank you for being the guarantee of what you're going to do in the future. Holy God, we give you praise And we thank you with our full hearts, for you are great and beyond description. Thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.